Good. I was assured by Bill right at the end of the worship service that I had two hours. Two hours. I hear the moans and the groans already. We have everybody on board. How's Jonathan and Michaela doing? Are they good? For those of you that don't know, Jonathan and Michaela are seated over here in a tiny little black box right next to Robbie. How's it going, Jonathan? Give me a thumbs up. There it is. We're good. Then Tiffany puts her hand in the way so we can't see. Good job, Tiff. Oh, we're having a good time this morning. And uh, we've been studying through, uh, if you haven't been here for a week or two, those of you that have been, just bear with this small update. We've, we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've gone, welcome to you two, straight from the road. Uh, we've been studying through 1 Corinthians, and we've specifically slowed down in chapters 6 and 7 uh, on purpose. And uh, we're turning the page today to chapter 8. Um, <clears throat> that slowdown was intentional uh, because we believe that we cannot miss, we really can't miss all of God's word uh, as Christ followers, but specifically in the areas of uh, our marital relationships or relationships in general, uh, regardless of what those are. We want to make sure that we're living biblically in that, and uh, we want to hear what God has to say about marriage rather than what our society is doing in redefining marriage over the last several decades, but now today we turn to the second question that was asked of Paul that he's going to respond to. There was a letter that was written to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, as I've said many times, is broken up into a couple of categories. One is the things that were reported back to him that was going on in the church in Corinth, and then the second part, or kind of co-mingled into this letter, they had some questions for him, and so they uh, had written him a letter and issues of marriage is one of those things that they want to know. Like, you know, should we do this? Should we do that? Maybe we should just not marry at all. Or, or uh, what do you do if, you know, if your spouse abandons you? Or what do you do if you're a believer and your spouse isn't? And all those types of questions. Uh, that was the first question. Today we turn to really the second question that they had. And that question kind of can be framed this way. And, of course, we don't have the exact wording of their letter but we can kind of deduce or deduct out of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians what those questions were. And that question probably was worded something like this. What do we do about food that's been sacrificed to idols? Idol worship in that Roman, uh, Greco-Roman world was commonplace, absolutely commonplace. And that that and we see it kind of strange that way. We look back and try to imagine what it might have been like or what it could have been like. Uh, but it was it was as commonplace as as everybody here owning a cell phone or everybody here coming to. Did anybody come to church this morning in a horse and covered wagon? By by chance, did anybody? Uh, I love the commentary. I have to be honest with you. That's why I ask questions. Um, no, nobody did. Did anybody ride a bike to church today? Now, if we lived in town, that would be feasible that people would either on a nice sunny morning, maybe you'd walk to church or you would ride a bike to church. Anybody ride a bike to church here this morning? No, not really commonplace. You know, walking to church when you got to, you know, when it's a 30-minute or 40-minute drive, uh, you need to drive or you're not going to get there. And so just as commonplace it is for us to jump in a car and to go somewhere, 
uh, or to own a cell phone, uh, that type of commonality in society, that's how common idol worship was. It was, it was absolutely just normal. And this was the environment that people were getting saved out of. This was the environment that people were coming to Christ and, and, and trusting in Christ as their Savior. They were coming out of that type of normal uh, living, and it was everything. It was, it was ingrained. How many people this week looked on your cell phone to get a recipe off the Internet? Anybody? We got a couple. Uh, how many people, let's put it this way, how many people got on your cell phone this week, this last week, and checked social media? Be honest, let's go. Everybody's hands should be up. Not everybody, because I know there's a few kind of furrowed brows and shaking of the heads. Not me. How many people got online in any capacity and looked up the weather this week? A few hands are going. That's very commonplace, right? Very normal. I do it every, pretty much every single day. That's how common, though, that's how common the lifestyle was for these new believers in the church there in Corinth when it come to dealing with issues of idolatry. It was just kind of embedded into every aspect of their culture in that day. And so what about the issues they have? They're struggling, and it's a good struggle that they're having. But what about food that's been sacrificed to idols? Is it okay to eat? Is it not okay? Uh, what if somebody serves it to you and you have a conviction not to eat it? What do we do? You know, how do we handle these awkward situations? Who, who has experienced in their Christian walk a plethora of awkward situations? We all have, right? We've all, we've all had those weird situations as Christ followers who are like, <gasps> what do we do now? What do we do now? I want to uh, frame up chapter 8 to get going. I want to frame it up this way. And I think that as you read through chapter 8 and some of the other verses that we have here to look at today, I, be, I, would, I, would <clears throat> I believe that we will see this in kind of a common light. Uh, and the real question that's on the table is not necessarily about food. Uh, but the real question we have to ask ourselves, and I think the real question that Paul put in front of the people in the first century because it's what God had inspired him to say, is what is the value of the relationships that you have with people? What, let me phrase it this way. What is, what is your relationships with the people around you, what, are, what is it worth? What are those relationships worth? And you have to ask yourself that question. I have to ask myself that question. What are those relationships worth? How much do they mean to me? And how am I willing to, to work out uh, some of these difficult scenarios as we walk through life? Now, here's the value that God puts on the relationships that he has. Most famous verse in all of the world says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? That, <coughs> sorry, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. That's how God views you. That's how God views people. He loves people so much. He loves you so much that he sent the best thing that he had. He sent his son. He sent his son. Now, providentially, he gives us a pattern then in how we should walk out our relationships that we have. And interestingly enough, it's found in 1 John 3.16. So the first one's found in the Gospel of John. The second one is in the epistle that John wrote. 1 John 3.16 says that 
By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we, ought al- <clears throat> we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Uh, when we understand the value and the purpose that God has for our relationships, we will live out and promote uh, this idea. We will live out and promote responsibilities towards one another rather than our own individual rights. The perspective that we're looking at here, this is, I believe, the perspective that, that the Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapters, actually chapters 8, 9, and 10 specifically, kind of from this perspective. The questions are about food. Is it right or wrong? But the answers revolve around relationships. Uh, and kind of this idea, uh, how is what I'm doing affecting the people that are around me? How is, how is it affecting me? He's not ignoring how it affects you personally or how it affects them personally. But how does it affect the people that are, are around me? Let's jump in and take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning, verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. The first point we want to look at is the fact that knowledge and love need to work together, not apart. Knowledge and love need to work together, not apart. See that specifically in these first couple of verses. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Instead of talking about food, Paul first talks about the principles of knowledge and love. Christian behavior is founded on love, not knowledge. Christian behavior is founded on love, not knowledge. And the goal of the Christian life is not knowledge, but love. But that's not to exclude knowledge. Because we should constantly be taking in knowledge. Knowledge of who God is. Knowledge of what the Word of God says. Knowledge of of who we are in, uh, in our identity in Christ. All of these different areas of the Christian walk, it's not to say that knowledge is bad or evil, but knowledge has a tendency, knowledge has a tendency to make us puffed up with pride. Both knowledge and love have an effect on our lives in that each of them makes something grow. The difference between puffs up and edifies is striking. It's the difference between a bubble and a building. Knowledge is like a bubble that eventually will burst. Love, though, edifies, it builds up. It's like building a building. And so if you look at your relationships with people, it's like building a, a, a relational building together. And each person is putting in components. Now, we can apply this in our marriages. We can apply this you know, in our families, with our kids, with our parents. We can apply, the, apply this in the workplace. We can apply this right here. Primarily, we should be pl- applying it right here within the body of believers, that our relationship should be viewed as a building and each person is, is adding to the, the structure relationally. Uh, I've said for years, especially talking with young people, that relationships are always going somewhere. They're either moving forward or they're moving backwards, but relationships don't stay static. They don't stay static. Uh, you can have, and you think about, well, what about my best friend that I haven't seen and you know, four or five, six years, 10 years, 20 years, and that when we talk, we can pick right up. That's true. 
But that's a move forward. It's not a move of, of doing nothing, even though there hasn't been conversation. You're just picking up and moving forward. So relationships are always moving. Relationships are like two people building a building together. That's edifying, the word says. The difference between that and what knowledge does, which they both make something grow, but knowledge is more like a hot air balloon. Sooner or later, if you keep adding enough pressure to the hot air balloon, it's going to escape somewhere. It's going to pop. And oftentimes it pops relationally. It pops relationally where two people then end up in conflict. <clears throat> so the difference, between, the difference between the two, one puffs up and the other one edifies, that difference is striking. It's the difference between a bubble and a building. Some Christians grow and others swell. Uh, be in the growing category. That's my encouragement for us this morning. Be in that growing category. Don't be in the swelling category. Be in the growing category. If anyone thinks he knows anything, if we think that we know it all, we really don't know anything. He knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Yet there's a knowledge there, as I said earlier, that is important. The knowledge of God. <clears throat> the knowledge God has for those who love him. We can have all the right knowledge and be completely in the dark because we've not loved first. This is God's story from the beginning. He loves his people. In light of that, Paul goes on to say in verse 4, Therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, so here's his reply to their, to their question, what do we do about food sacrificed to idols? He says, We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we are for him, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we live. As I mentioned throughout this series, Paul has a distinct way of writing when it comes to 1 Corinthians. In every issue that he addresses... Starting in chapter 1, in every issue that he addresses, he wraps, his answer is always threaded back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It always wraps back to who Jesus is. And he does that here in this passage right from the get-go. He says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father. There's, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. And he says, hey, there might be lots of idols, there might be lots of quote-unquote, small-g gods out there that other people are uh, attributing something to or they're worshiping, they're bowing down before, they're looking, and here's the difference, they're looking for provision for something. And everybody, this is the truth about all of us, all of us look for identity and provision somewhere. And Paul's encouragement is to say, hey, that's true, it's all out there. But for the Christ follower, there's one. For the Christ follower, there's just one. That's where we have to stick. So the second point that we want to make here in thinking about this is think about what we do. He's, he's propelling them to think about what they do. You get that from verses 4 through 6 and verse 8, which we haven't gotten to yet, but looking forward. So we need to think about what we do, and, and, and it raises a question. It raises this question in my mind. Is it right or wrong? 
Is what I'm about to partake in, is it right or wrong? Is it biblical? Is it not biblical? Does the Bible prohibit it in some way? A better question I like to ask in talking about some of these gray areas, and, and frankly, you know, for them, uh, food sacrificed to idol for some was kind of a gray area. For others, it was black and white on both sides of the spectrum. But I like to look at it this way. Does it promote, is what I'm about to do, does it promote the kingdom of God? Does it promote the kingdom of God in a way that is, draws people to the Lord? He says in verse 7, however, <clears throat> there's not even in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak. Is their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not condemn us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But be aware, lest someone, uh, somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat some of those things Offered to idols. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat it. I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother to stumble. What was going on there was you had believers and non-believers and and this was kind of the this was kind of the scenario that they had uh probably not the scenario we have today we have other issues though of conscience that are hot topics for us and especially in these days that we live in but the issues they had was you would have you would have meat being served that you'd have these huge temples these big idol worshiping temples uh and at the end of it all, just out to the side perhaps, you got a little cafe and people are eating what was sacrificed because, hey, let's face it, it's cooked meat and who doesn't like cooked meat? I like cooked meat. You like cooked meat? Everybody likes cooked meat unless you're a vegetarian, which is fine if you're a vegetarian, right? But people were, were partaking like we're not just going to throw this away, right? If you're, running the, if you're running the temple, you're thinking, hey, we can make a few bucks on the side, Run in the cafe. So then you have all these believers, as Christianity starts to grow in Corinth. You have these believers, and some of them are saying, hey, it's fine with me. Like, I don't care where the meat came from. And you have others, there's, it really bothers them. It really sticks in their mind. They're struggling. They're wrestling with this idea that, that I would, or somebody else would partake in something that was part of a worship service to a demonic foreign idol. And what do we do, and how do we walk that out? This is why Paul frames up the whole answer with issues of relationships between one another. I think the key for us, the key for them, is think about who's watching. Think about who's watching what you're doing. Think about who's examining your life. And frankly, if we're really honest in this room, we'll say that we examine one another's lives all the time. 
we're watching to see how's the other person's walk going. How if and and we're watching to see you know the fruit in their lives, and they're watching to see the fruit in our lives. So think about who's watching. And the question on the table is: is what does it do to their conscience? Will it tweak with with whatever I'm about to partake in? Will it tweak a conscience? Now, the conscience is an interesting aspect of humanity. Uh, just straight up from the dictionary, it's an, <clears throat> and I don't necessarily ascribe to all of this. I'm just giving you what the dictionary calls the conscience. An inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrong, wrongness of one's behavior. Uh, eh. I would probably reword it a little bit differently. I have a different view on the conscience that we'll jump into. But uh, in actuality, it's, it's pretty close. It's, I would just cut off the second half of the sentence and put it this way. It's the guide to the rightness or the wrongness of a person's behavior. It's part of how you're designed. Nowhere else in creation, nowhere else in the animal kingdom, do they have a conscience. They just work off of impulse. They work off a of natural uh, reaction, natural desire. God's programmed every person. He's programmed every person with a conscience. And this conscience that you have and that I have, it's, it's kind of like having a software update that's going on all the time. It's constantly updating, constantly updating. A guide to the rightness or the wrongness. It's constantly updating with regularity, either good or bad. That's how your conscience works. We'll dive into a bunch of verses that talk about the conscience. There's actually four descriptions of the conscience. There's actually more than that in the Bible. Uh, but there's four kind of main categories that I've listed out here. I want to say, perhaps you're wondering, what do you mean it updates good or bad? It updates this way. In our behavior, starting at a young age, whatever age that is, when, when you're cognizant of what's right or wrong in your behavior, say you're at the candy store, and, and there's, a, there's a fellow that goes to the church, he's not here today, but he went back and apologized to a man that, that he had stolen something from, and he apologized like 50 years later after he became a believer. God brought that situation to his mind, and convicted him of that, and he was under such deep, deep conviction that he went back and apologized. Do you know what he stole? A five-cent piece of candy from a candy store. And you think, man, what's the big deal? Five cents, right? No. His conscience was burdened when God brought that through the Holy Spirit to his mind, to his recollect, that he should make that right with that person. Right? His conscience at that point, 50 years later, was now being reprogrammed, re-updated. And, of course, it was engaging with the Holy Spirit to convict him of that. But say we take that little, that little boy in the candy store who steals that piece of candy, puts it in his pocket, takes it home, goes out behind the woodshed, enjoys that piece of candy. That event affects that little guy's conscience especially if he knows that it was wrong. Okay? So his conscience in that moment becomes updated in a negative way. 
Guess what happens the next time he's in the candy store? Right? Puts another one in his pocket. Puts another one in his pocket. If he's not caught up, if he's not disciplined, if there's no knowledge of it, his conscience is just updated again. And this happens with regularity. It happens with us all day, every day, all day long. Different, you know. And so through the course of that little guy's life, his conscience gets numb to the idea that he's stealing. That's just one little example, one, one, uh, one little aspect. You can apply it in all kinds of areas of life. But God's programmed every person with a conscience that updates regularly. Now, four descriptions. Let's dive into those really quick. Four descriptions of the conscience. One is it's mankind's mark of God. Two, uh, it's not to be uh, offensive. Three, it works in conjunction with or it works with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And four, it can be wrecked. It can be wrecked. All right, A, let's start with number one. The conscience is embedded in our created software. We look at Romans chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 for that. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, so this is kind of uh, early on in the book of Romans, Paul's laying out the, the case for how mankind has gotten sideways with God. And he says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, and here it is, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves and their thoughts accusing or excusing them. So that little boy, his thoughts are kind of become, when he becomes aware that he's not just violating his conscience, but he's violating God's law, he becomes under conviction for that, regardless of how long ago it happened. So conscience is embedded in our created software. It's how God created us. He created us with a moral compass of good and bad. And we know that this is true. We know that we've experienced this as, as people. We, you can think back over your own life, and I can think back over my life as the times where I ignored the, my conscience prompting and marched full a throttle forward in areas of life that were destructive. It's embedded in our created software. But it does update. The conscience is not to be used as an excuse to offend. In Romans 14, really the summary of the whole, and I have the whole chapter of Romans 14 in my notes, and I don't, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read the parts that I highlighted. If you want to summarize Romans 14, you could summarize it this way, where Paul says, I don't want to be condemned in my heart for what I approve in my mind. I don't want to be condemned in the heart for what I re- approve in my mind. Look at these. And the word conscience doesn't show up in Romans 14 at all, but essentially that's the whole topic of what Paul's talking about. Right in verse 1, Romans 14, 1 says, Refe- re- <coughs> Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So again, he's talking relationally, but he's talking about somebody with, who's weak in the faith, somebody that has a weak conscience in, in, in a certain aspects of their life. <clears throat> Let's get something out on the table uh, ahead of time, and I meant to do this earlier. I will guarantee you that nobody wants to identify with a piece, as a person with a weak conscience. If we're really honest, we're thinking, nah, that's not me, I'm, I'm good. 
A person that has a weak conscience never wants to identify that way, but it does show up relationally. That's how we discover it. And the more that, and the quicker that we are transparent enough and honest enough to admit that, that if it's me and I'm the one struggling with somebody else eating food sacrificed to idols or I'm struggling with somebody else's behavior because it's, uh, it's, it's hard for me to accept it, the sooner that I do accept it and that we work it out relationally, the stronger that relational building uh, will be built. That's a little key for, for that. But I don't want to be condemned in my heart for what I approve in my mind. Romans 14, 1 was the first one. Verse 5 is the next one. So here's a, a statement that Paul makes about conscience. One person esteems one day over another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. If you're convicted, if, you, if, you're, if your conscience is guiding you to say, hey, this day is important to me. Even though it's not important to somebody else, it's important to me. Then live that out. And if, every, if you're the type of person that every day is the same, Live that out. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Have a free conscience in that way. Drop down to verse 12. Verse 12 says this. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Paul kind of transitions here to talking about how we stand before the Lord with the conscience that we have, with the convictions that we have. And therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not putting a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. It's a very similar language to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the last few verses of chapter 8. But he says, hey, let's not judge one another. Let's not put something in one another's way. Don't use your liberty in that sense, your liberty, your freedom of conscience to eat meat sacrificed to idols as if that was the thing. Maybe it's some other thing. But don't use that to make somebody else fall in their walk before the Lord. All of this is relational, how we relate to one another. The next couple of verses in Romans 14, Paul says this. He says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ that there is nothing unclean in and of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and that's exactly that verse right there is exactly when it comes to issues of conscience uh, is it kingdom building are you taking your liberties at the expense of somebody else that might stumble and fall or not or not is the, the, the real issue on the table, honestly, I believe, is the lack of communication and relationship between the two people. Because I think it's fine. Some people don't get wound up over having a beer once in a while. Other people say, nope, can't do it. I can't do it. And maybe that was because of previous addiction. Maybe it was because of, of issues in the past and, and uh, experiences in the past where you're just like, nope. Not going to do it. But maybe it's an issue of conscience. Maybe it's an issue that you say, you know what? I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to cause my brother to stumble when I walk out of the store with a six-pack. Because maybe that will trip them up. Maybe that will cause them to, to slip back into an addiction. 
The real issues are a lack of communication and transparency, I believe. And that's a relational issue. That's why Paul starts off with that in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but it's about righteousness and it's about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Three things that are both true of our walk before the Lord, but are also three things, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. They're also true of our relationships with other people. Because we can share in the experience of growing in our righteousness, our rightness before God. We can share in our relationship by having peace in our relationships and definitely the celebration side, the joy side. We can share in those things. Happy is a man who condemns, (coughs) who does not condemn himself in what he approves. That's clear down in verse 22. Happy is a man who does not condemn himself in what he approves. The next aspect of the conscience is, is that the conscience works together with the Holy Spirit to lead us. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 says, Our boasting is this, the testimony of, a good, of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with the fleshly wisdom, but with the grace of God and more abundantly, that we did those things toward you. That we did those things towards you. The Holy Spirit and our conscience works together to guide us in a good way, in a right way. The next verse in that point, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. I'll actually back up and read a little bit more. Further up, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy and we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. So Paul's kind of setting the stage for their own ministry. He says this, but by manifestation of the truth, condemning ourselves, (coughs) commending ourselves, you don't want to get those words mixed up, guaranteed, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's saying, hey, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's saying, hey, we're, we're wide open. Our conscience is clear before everybody, uh, and that's proved out in our ministry, in our behavior, in our speech. He said it's proved out everywhere. We can stand up with a clear conscience, and that's because we've been guided by the Holy Spirit. I want to give you a little, uh, a little illustration, a little thought. Uh, I heard the conscience was described this way. The conscience, a person's conscience is like an alarm clock. Now, who here has had the horrible experience of having your alarm clock go off at the wrong time? Anybody? Doesn't that stink? Nobody likes to wake up at the... Either you're waking up way too early, which you're thinking, I just got robbed of an hour of sleep. Or you're waking up way too late... And so then you're rushing around, you're throwing clothes, you're jumping in the shower, you're, you know, you're scrambling to try to get ready to go, and you just know you're going to be late, and you're just so frustrated because that alarm clock went off at the wrong time, right? How about having that sweet feel of having your alarm clock go off at the right time? Like... You guys are all looking at me like, nobody likes to get up at the right time anyway. Everybody wants that extra hour of sleep. I get it. 
But when the alarm clock goes off, when you go to bed and you say, hey, I'm getting up at 5, and I'm going to spend some time in the Word, then I'm gonna, and drink a cup of coffee, because that part's important, right? And then I'm going to get a shower, and I'm going to get some food, and I'm out the door, and I'm off to work. And it's a great day, and the, and the morning just flows nice and smooth. And it all started because you set your alarm at the right time. The alarm clock went on, off at the right time for the right reasons, and you're feeling good about your day, right? As opposed to the alarm clock going off at the wrong time for the wrong reasons and turning your day into a complete whirlwind. That's a lot. That's the picture of how I view our conscience. I want my conscience to go off for the right reasons. Because when it doesn't go off for the right reasons, when it doesn't sound the alarm in my mind, when it doesn't, you know, something pops up on the internet, I need my conscience working for the right reasons at the right time. Right? Something pops up, an ad pops up on TV, which anymore, a lot of these ads on TV, they'd never allow them 10 years ago. I want my conscience to be ringing in my mind for the right reasons. And if it's not updated, if it's not updating for the, in the right way, for the good rather than the bad, for the righteous instead of the unrighteous, eventually it won't go off for the right reasons. It'll go off at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. Do we all follow that? Here's why I share all that. You say, what about going off at the wrong time, time for the wrong reasons? Or not going off at all? Who's had their alarm clock not go off at all? Then you're more than an hour late for work. Uh, the conscience can be seared and defiled, the word says. It can be seared and defiled. The good news is, and I don't have these verses for you, but both First Peter and the book of Hebrews talk about how our conscience can be cleansed, how they can be cleaned up. But our conscience can be seared and defiled. When you sear something, you're taking a hot iron, just like branding a cow, right? You're going to take that red-hot iron, and you're going to sear that that uh, side of that cow, it's going to burn through the hair, it's going to burn into the flesh, into the skin, and it's going to leave a permanent mark. That's what seared means, right? It's a violent event. It's pretty stinky if you ever worked a bunch of cows. Not people's favorite part. Uh, as far as the cow's concerned, definitely not her favorite part of the event, Right? Nobody likes to be smoked with a hot iron. But that's what happens to our conscience. It's as if a hot iron, and I'm going to put it this way, a hot iron of sin affected our conscience. That's what happens when it updates regularly to the bad. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. There's a, few, there's a key verse in here, but I'll read a few verses. Now, the Spirit expressively says in the latter times that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believed and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing <clears throat> is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. 
for it is sanctified by the word of God and with prayer. In the early part of that, in the first couple of verses, verse 1 and verse 2, you see this kind of list, or actually it goes into verse 3, you kind of see this list of people that, uh, and the first description is people that have departed from the faith. Somebody that's left the faith. That means that they had to be in the faith at one point. They had believed rightly. Perhaps they were, I'd go with that, they were behaving rightly. And eventually they departed. They left. They backed away. They abandoned the faith, whatever word that you want to put in there. But some will depart the faith from the faith and heed to de- give heed to deceiving spirits. There's a bit of a progression here. When we walk away from what we clearly know is the truth of the word, uh, we kind of start giving ourselves over to these deceiving spirits, uh, doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. There's a whole message in here. We won't dive too deeply into it. But the result of their scenario is that they have their own consciences seared with a hot iron. They've, they've taken, their, their conscience now is completely affected permanently as with a hot iron. The conscience can be seared. The conscience can also be defiled, which you, it's kind of a parallel passage in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. The context of this is Paul describing those that are insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, home wreckers, false teachers who've left and turned from the truth. Those are all in the preceding verses before we get to verse 15. So it's a lot of the same category, the people we talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 4. But in verse 15, Paul says this. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But those who are defiled and unbelieving, but but those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. That's a pretty harsh description for somebody whose conscience has, has uh, been torn apart in that way. Who, in the, If you can imagine, from the innocence of youth, being created with a conscience to know both good and evil, now is only on one side of the equation, only on one side of the equation, and their conscience then becomes defiled. It becomes unclean. It becomes something that is uh, detestable and God is opposed to. Regardless of what they say, notice in verse 16, they profess to know God, so they have a word that they know God, but the fruit doesn't follow. They've not put on fruit in keeping with repentance as John the Baptist admonished the Jewish leaders to do. There's no fruit in keeping with repentance even if they have a profession of knowing who God is. Paul says here, but in works they deny him. In other words, there's there's no evidence of what they're saying is true. There's no backing up what they say is true. No, their conscience has been defiled. They don't know the difference really between right and wrong. In fact, I would venture to say that what they think is right, what they think is good, according to their created conscience, is actually bad. 
and what they think is bad is actually good. It's a little flip-flop. They profess to know God, but their works deny him, being abominable. The verses that I didn't insert are found in 1 Peter chapter 3 and the book of Hebrews. Both talk about a good and a cleansed conscience. Uh, I should have inserted them even right before the sermon because I was thinking about that as, and I'd read through them prior to this. But back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in concert with these verses, specifically the verses out of Romans chapter 14, uh, we have a decision to make. We have a decision to make. And Paul brings the Corinthian believers to a decision point. And this is the decision point that he wants them to embrace. He wants them to decide to love the onlooker. Because when it becomes issues of conscience, you can kind of despise the onlooker. It's like, you know what? What I do is my business. What you do is your business. Don't worry about me. I won't worry about you. That's not love. That's rights over responsibilities relationally. And Paul really is encouraging the Corinthian believers, and by the way, I hope we are encouraged this morning, to decide to love the people that are looking in on your life. Verses 1 and 3 and verses 13 are the verses that, I'll go back and just read them real quick. Now concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him, by the Lord. And choose God's way to love. We need to be resolved. We need to be willing to exchange our rights sometimes for, in exchange for our responsibilities. And we live in a culture that's really big on our rights right now. I get that. And I'm not saying that we don't have certain rights. Absolutely we do. And I'm not talking necessarily about those particular rights. I'm talking about the responsibilities in and, above, in and around our relationships to one another and how our rights then can be a negative for somebody else that's struggling in the same area. That's what Paul's getting to when he says these are issues that are a matter of conscience or somebody has a weak conscience, somebody doesn't have a weak conscience. How is your holding on to and promoting your rights affecting the people that are around you? And is it better that we look at our relationships as a responsibility to other people's growth? Is it better that we abstain in something and build a relationship and, and watch and see perhaps that person would grow in their faith Maybe their, their convictions about a certain thing or their, you know, would change a little bit. And it wouldn't be as big a deal. And I, I, and I can share this story as we start to wrap up a little bit. I can share this story. When I first became a believer, I had a huge music collection. Uh, not very much of that was Christian music. There was a few bits and pieces. But I sat at a bonfire in front of my house one night and just started throwing you know, CDs. You guys know what those are, right? The little discs. Started throwing CDs into a fire because I didn't, I was convicted about the message, the message that was in that music. Not edifying. Not godly. Was it about being, uh, you know, all about works and, and somehow God would smile on me if I did this? That wasn't it at all. I didn't want the influence. Now, 
all these years later, walking through the mall or thumbing through a radio station, that type of music can come up. It doesn't bother me like it bothered me before. It doesn't have the effect that it had on me when I was 19 or 20. Not at all. I don't particularly care to listen to it, but I can listen to it, and it doesn't have that allure. It doesn't have that draw. It doesn't take me back to a time and a place like it did when I was 19 or 20. It does, it's not something that propels me to want to you know, go out and party with my friends like I did when I was 19 or 20. So it has a different effect. We need to understand that that, that is now all of these years later of, con- of a conscience being updated regularly in a certain direction. Now I can kind of, you know, handle some of that kind of stuff. But I was just being real with where I was. And I knew that I couldn't handle it then. So like the Corinthian believers here that he's talking to in chapter 8 that are struggling with this issue of dining at the, you know, temple cafe knowing that they would be eating meat that somebody had just worshipped up to this, you know, Greek god. Uh, that was kind of my case when it came to music all those years ago. And I was just like, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. Not going to be around it. And I kind of isolated and insulated myself from that. That's not a bad thing. If we want to be real, at 19 or 20, I was the one with the weak conscience. And I can look back and see that now. And I can talk about it now. But 30 years later, my conscience, after being updated regularly, is a lot stronger in that area. And I can absorb a little bit of that, and it doesn't affect me. See, that's kind of that growing process. That's what's natural and and normal, I believe, for the Christ follower. Does that mean that some of those convictions go away completely? No, not at all. Like, I'm not going to go out and buy an ACDC album, right? I don't necessarily want to listen to that type of music now. But it isn't because I think now, 30 years later, that somehow God will shine on me if I don't listen to it. It's just simply the fact that it's not my thing. It's not my thing. I can absorb it once in a while. If the boys on the bus coming back from a football game want to listen to that, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't have the effect that it once had. That's that growing process. And I can stand with a good conscience toward the Lord saying, you know, I'm good to go. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Decide to love the onlooker. It's more about the people, honestly, that are watching than about your own rights. It's about the responsibility of relationships. Verse 13 says in 1 Corinthians 8, the last one, Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, I'll never eat it, eat, <clears throat> never again eat meat, lest I make my brother to stumble. Which rights, which responsibilities, what areas of life are they good, are they bad? The bigger question is, not so much what you're doing, but how does what you're doing impact other people? That's the question that needs to be asked. That's what Paul's putting in front of him. Not so much about the food. It can be any area of life. But how does it impact other people? And how are you walking out what God has called you to do and how God has called you to live? That's the important question. There is a time and a place if you're free in your conscience, if you're free in your convictions, you know, there's a time and a place for those types of things. But again, who's watching? Who's learning? 
who's embracing that. And it will have an impact on generations. I was sharing with a guy the other day, just yesterday, uh, <clears throat> that uh, a friend of mine, el- elderly friend of mine, uh, has struggled with tobacco his whole life. He either smoked or he chewed. Now he doesn't. But uh, he was sharing with me years ago how that had impacted all of his, all of his boys. It's a big family. Uh, and most of his sons all struggled or have an addiction in some which way or have had with tobacco. And I think that he would tell you now today, if I could read his mind and read his mail a little bit as we close up and as the worship team comes on up, <clears throat> he would probably would say this, I wish I was more sensitive, more sensitive to what my conscience had to say about this at the time. I wish I was a little more sensitive when I become a believer to what the Holy Spirit was convicting me. Because there was times that he'd quit and then started again, quit and started again. I wish I was a little more sensitive back then about certain things. Because now he looks back and sees what he started when he was a teen and now how it's affected the people that he has raised. And it's an interesting story. I won't go into it any deeper than that. Only to say that what you embrace, how you live out your life, the convictions that you have, your sensitivity to both the Holy Spirit and the conscience that God created and put inside of each one of us is as is of utmost importance. And it's a little less important of how it affects you and a lot more important how it affects other people. Let's go ahead and close with our last worship song.